Oh, we're stewarding a move of God, and, and we have to always choose love no matter what. Even when we're misunderstood, we have to just keep choosing love. So, uh, You know what I found the demonic realm hates? Love. <laughs> it's like, it's just created. The demonic realm just wants to cause confusion and create offense. And I just refuse to be offended. I'm going to out-love them and outlast them. Yeah. Yeah. God's good. God is really good. Stacy, is Stacy here? Come up here, Stace. The Lord put you on my heart, man. Yeah, so my friend here, the Lord give me a word for you, man. I was uh, seeing all these pictures of you on top of a roof. And then the Lord reminded me of a scripture that says, what I tell you in secret, go on the rooftops to share with the world. And so it was like the Lord was telling me that you being a roofer even has a prophetic sense because you thought you should be hidden off and he's showing you off on those roofs to the demonic realm. Yeah, he's showing you off. Yeah, he's proud of you. He's really, really proud of you. I love you, man. Thank you, buddy. Yeah. Can we so, pray for Stacy? I yeah, just feel like the enemy sees all the goodness of God that mm. you've allowed him to bring in your life. You've opened the door to the goodness of God. And you said, keep filling me up, Lord. Keep filling me up enemy tries to trip you up, you say, keep filling me up, Lord, more, Lord. And I just know that the enemy, that the enemy, the principalities in darkness hates you. And for good reason, for really good reason. Can you guys stretch your hands out here and just agree for a supernatural hedge of protection around Stacy, around every thought, around his mind, Lord, the enemy is going to be greatly saddened when he sees that Stacy will stand through every trial. Lord, because you are his strength, Lord, he dwells in the strong tower of your name that is sovereign and mighty, Lord. You have made him a king and a priest, Lord. And I just declare today that you continue to robe him, clothe him, put a ring on every finger, God, and you just put him in front of the, in front of the enemy, Lord, as a trophy of your glory and your goodness, and that no weapon formed against him will prosper in the name of Jesus. And we say yes and amen to that declaration in Jesus' name. Yes. Stacy, I've said it a long time ago, and I'm going to keep saying it. I hear the word scribe. I hear the word scribe. Now, when you look the word up, in the Bible and then look it up in Webster's Dictionary it has a lot to do with writing. You love to write. And you're going to go back and you're going to look at some of the things you've written and out of that will come books. You're going to write books. 
Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Receive that. Receive that because I've been hearing it a long time. You're going to write books. And the next part of your life and your walking, God, you're going to have dreams and visions. God's going to give you dreams and visions, and you're going to write them down. And when you write them down, they'll be exactly the way they have because he's been teaching you how to write things down exactly the way he says because that's what a scribe does. A scribe never misses a dot, nor a tittle, nor a comma, and that's what you've been doing. So God is loving you, and you are in him in him and in his presence and he's so in love with you and sis was right our pastor sister was so right that the enemy he got your name he got your number but he about to mess up on the address so don't worry god got you hey, hey where you going man i ain't done no shit. <laughs> no, I've done two flights of membership journey classes, and every one I'm like, uh, so what made you stay? And they're like, Stacy, give me a hug. And he said, first it like cracked all my ribs, but afterwards I felt so welcome that I decided I would stay. So, oh man, love it, love it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. God is our sanctuary. But here's the other side of that coin. We are his. And to think through that one. Yeah. Yeah, he's ours. But we're here. We're his. The Bible calls us the temple of God. The place where God wants to live. So God is all about removing separation. And what I found is, and, and we'll be looking at Romans chapter chapter eight at first, and then we'll we'll dive into first Kings as well. But what I found that the devil really his ammunition is to get us focused on circumstances. And not focused on relationship. It's the age-old trick that Satan did with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's like, like God is hiding something from us. As if he's not perfectly good, transparent, and completely open with us and honest with us at all times. Um, He tricks Adam and Eve by bringing them to a place to where they're doubting his goodness and they get them to doubt what God actually said. Did God really say that? And what I found is, is that the word of God when it goes forth and the promise of God when it goes forth, it's always tested. And the thing that God works against Satan is that when he tries to test the word or the promise that comes into our life, every time it's tested, when we trust God, we come out that much more stronger and that much more glorified, that much more filled with his presence, that much more confident. And so it's like Satan hasn't learned the lesson yet because he's, he's pretty dumb. 
He's not creative. All he can do is imitate what God, God creates, Satan imitates. That's all he can do. And so he puts us in these positions of, of trying to sabotage us, but what it's really doing is it's creating in us something of a far more an exceeding and eternal weight of glory than we can even know. Uh, it's like that the trials that come in aren't evidence of separations. The trials that come in are evidence that we are in the authentic relationship with Jesus. So if we start seeing when we go through trials and we go through struggles, if we'll start seeing them as evidence that we are the reality of the thing, it'll give us that much more confidence to step into the next battle knowing that God is with us. Because this is the question that God wants to answer. You ready? He wants to tell you and you to be convinced that he's with you. You'll never find a scripture where it says, uh, you'll never go through a hard time. There'll never be any persecution. You're never going to go through any kind of darkness or valleys or anything like that. The promise that God gives you is this. I'm with you. I'm with you. So God has got something in his heart that is, puts the precedence on relationship and nearness above our comfort and above what we think he ought to be doing in our life. So we have to position our hearts to receive the answer that God wants to give us. And many times we create a God in our own mind that we want to be a certain kind of way, but that isn't the way that God presents himself. God presents himself as a God that removes separation, comes in the middle of the hardness, comes into the middle of your mess, in the middle of everything about what you're going through, and he enters into that place with you and says, I'm here. Why? Because he wants you to get to the place where him being there is enough. Yeah. And when him being there is enough, it sets the demonic realm off into a frenzy. Because now they realize they can't move your heart and get you outside of the plan and purposes of God. Yeah. See, there's a gospel not just preached to people that don't know about him. There's a gospel preached to the demonic realm with our lives that see in the secret place. That's why Jesus said, if you, if you, uh, if, if you are, got the secret place right, I will reward you publicly or openly. Why? Because that's what puts the demonic realm on the run when our secret place is right. Yeah. So God wants to be near, not just with you publicly, but when you close the door and it's just you and him. You ever tried to ignore him? <laughs> the nervous laughter. You know what he's telling you to do. But you say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you be going to church, getting ready too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, that looks good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Got a big old Bible under your arm. Like you something else. And he just keeps following you around like, when we going to talk?
Not now, God, I'm worshiping you. As if you don't have to have the conversation. Or as if he doesn't know. Yeah. Because God's got this thing about being near. (laughs) And David runs into this problem. He says, man, if I go up to the highest heavens, you're there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. That God would even be in the place of the dead waiting to have the conversation. So, God, in his wisdom, will follow us around until we're ready to talk. And as we're taking steps outside of dialogue with him, it's like one landmine after another. And here's Jesus. How's that going for you? You want to you wanna run some things by me? or You got like one arm hanging off. No, I got it, Jesus. I got it, Jesus. There's still a, I still got one good leg here, Jesus. And you're blown up to bits and all beat up. And there's Jesus. You know, I'm here if, if you need me. By this time, you're crawling. Ah, no, Jesus, I got it from here. I'm about to hit my stride. <laughs> it's like, no, you're about to lose everything you got is what you're about to do. Yeah. We better get in the word here. This is getting, this is getting out of hand. Romans 8, starting in verse 28. Ooh, don't you love this one? And we know... That some things work together. Hold on. I can get my, get my readers. And we know that most things. Hold, hold on. Let me zoom in. Oh, you do know a scripture. Okay. I thought, I thought you did. Okay. Hold on. Let me zoom in. Okay. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son. (laughs) That his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, (laughs) he also glorified. Sounds like he's got it figured out for our life here, that he's going to finish the job here. What then shall we say about these things? 
Well, God doesn't love us. He just ain't around. I just don't feel him like I, I used to. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I'm just going to let Paul preach today, okay? Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, oh, along with him, freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. See, God justifies, and justification is as if we never sinned. That's how innocent we are before him. So it's like when God says not guilty and then we tell him how guilty we are all the time. Um, Yeah, you're not the judge. See, part of the sin in the garden was to put Satan wanted to get men in a place to where he was. Okay? So Satan, by definition, is the accuser of the brethren. Yeah. So by getting Adam to choose and Eve to choose between the knowledge of good and evil, it took them from a place of the tree of life of relationship where God would decide those things through the relationship they were working out to put Adam in the place where I can choose good and evil and now I'm the judge. So when I'm operating in that realm as a judge, guess what I'm going to do to people? And then guess who my father is? The one who judges. The accuser of the brethren. (laughs) Yeah. So Paul is moving us to this place to say there's only one judge. And he said that you're not guilty. So remove the judgment from your heart and from your mind. And say, I'm going to trust your judgment, God, because you know better than me anyway. Yeah. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Verse 34. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is also interceding for us. What a thought. Jesus is praying for us. Oh, my goodness. Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for us right now. Verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, see, it's all separation here. It's not talking about no troubles or smooth passages. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble... Or distress? Or persecution? Hey, let's just answer those all. Will trouble? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Yikes. Danger? No. Sword? No. As it is written, 
For your sake, we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. Yeah. yeah. So we've been defining victory based upon our own comfort. When you don't get to decide victory, the victory was already won 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God where we wait for our king to come back. That you don't get to decide what's victory or not. You're not a judge. And the judge has already declared, you've got the victory. That we would be considered more than conquerors. Well, what does that mean? That means we won and we didn't even have to fight. Yeah. It's kind of like me, you know, like I work and get a check and then it goes to my wife. She's more than a conqueror, you know what I'm saying? I like to be in trouble. It keeps things interesting. <laughs> you know, bad kids got to get attention somehow, sometimes. So you just got to, sometimes you got to show out. Verse, well, sorry. Verse 37. In all things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. Verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. I think he's running out of things here. He's now, now he's in other stuff. Nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's trying to get our perspective outside of our circumstance and to get us to realize that God isn't going anywhere. Not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. He's not going to permit you to not be in, go through some stuff. He's not going to always permit a smooth passage. I mean, Paul's trying to get the gospel to Rome, and he gets shipwrecked and is floating on a piece of wood. Now, I would think, okay, I'm trying to get this guy to Rome. Let's just translate him there. Bloop, bloop. Oh, he's there. He's in Rome. But there's something about the journey that develops something on the inside of us that cultivates relationship that if we don't go through certain things, we don't come out on the other side appreciative and knowing the depths of the love that's actually in Christ. See, when things are going good, it's easy for me to believe that God loves me. But when something doesn't go my way, 
How quick am I to say God must be against me? Or so? but, but this is what this passage is dealing with. It's saying there is no separation between you and God. The problem is not your circumstance. The problem is not your children. The problem is not your spouse. The problem is none of those things. The problem is you've yet to realize that God is in the middle of the thing with you. And when you begin to realize that he is the one in the middle with you, and you're content in that, he then can touch the other areas of your life because he's accomplishing the resurrection power of Christ in your heart through any situation. Yeah. So if he can't get us to the place where we say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. If he can't get us to the place to... No, the Father will never leave us or forsake us. Then we can't walk like Jesus. We're just going to be orphans running around wondering if our Father loves us anymore. And guess what we'll reproduce? More scared orphans wondering if God's even with us. Because Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Yeah. So God wants to inform me of his nearness. And that's what Christ's life is all about. That God becomes flesh in the incarnation to show us there's not one ounce of human flesh that he has not infused himself in and that he's willing to deal with. There's not one stage of life that God is distant in that he's not willing to infuse himself in in every single part of our life. So what I think Romans is saying here in a sense is, is I have to be in a place to know that God is always with me, that he's always gonna work out all things together for my good, his good, and his glory and that when I step into these things, I now have entered into a place of trust where I don't have to hang on to the things and hide them from God as if they're not there, but I can actually offer him things that I've been hanging on to so that I can experience the fact that he is near to me. Because I want to tell you right now, it'll be going through trials where you're going to feel the nearness of God much more than whenever things go in your way. Yeah, yeah. So God is teaching us how to give him our last. All right, let's look at this real quick. First Kings 17. The story of Elijah. I love Elijah. Yeah, this one too over here. He's, he's cool too. First Kings 17, verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. Now, Tishbe is mentioned nowhere else in the Old Testament, and nobody knows where it is. So this guy is a nobody from nowhere, but who has a walk with the Lord that is incredible. 
said to Ahab, and at this time Ahab and Jezebel had just these wicked rulers, and they had set up as the national deity, supposed to be one true God, Yahweh, to be the one true God over Israel, and now Jezebel and her husband Ahab have set up Baal as the God of the people of God. And so Elijah, the prophet, is called to bring a word. And he says, as certainly as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be no dew or rain in the years ahead unless I give the command. So what was Baal? Baal was this deity who was the God over the lightning and the storm. In other words, Baal was a fertility God who brought rain on the earth and made crops grow. So the man of God is put in a position to prophesy to the leadership at the time and say, okay, if you're going to remove Yahweh, the one who actually makes it rain on the crops and who actually blesses the people, if you're going to put Baal in charge, well, then you're going to see what it's like when Baal's in charge. And the, he can't make it rain. He doesn't have that ability, doesn't have that power. So it's not going to rain until I give the command that it's going to rain again. So he's showing them what life looks like when God is not involved. And I want to tell you something. Whenever God's not involved, there will always be a famine. Now, now listen to me. But can a famine separate us from God? No, we just learned that. So it's not that God's not there. He's just waiting on us to call out to him. That the only reason why judgment comes into the earth is so that God can show himself as the God in whom he is, and that's a God of grace. So the only time God sends judgment is when he steps back and allows sin, and the wages of sin are death, allow us to experience some consequences, waiting on us to call upon him so he can redeem the situation and step back into the thing. So the only reason why God sends judgment is not because he's angry, not because he's been out of shape. He does it because he can't show himself in the earth strong without us being in relationship with him. Like that's how serious God is about relationship. I'll send judgment until they call out on me to enter into relationship with me. Yeah, that, that's, that's what he's up to. So by withholding rain, Yahweh is uh, demonstrating the power of his kingship over nature and over which Baal has no jurisdiction to even bring anything. Verse 2, the Lord's message came to him. Leave here and travel eastward. Hide out in the Kirith Valley near the Jordan. Drink from the stream. I have already told the ravens to bring you food there. So he carried out the Lord's message. He went and lived in the Kirith Valley near the Jordan. The ravens would bring him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he would drink from the stream. So, here he is tied up and speaking from the Lord, and now he's going to have to be put into a place of hiding because now he's in big trouble. How many of you know, sometimes when you speak for the Lord, you're going to be in big trouble, Okay? But can we trust that he'll feed us in a place that he's sheltering us in? See, the lesson is not just for the king, because God's trying to do this to get Jezebel and Ahab to cry out and ask for forgiveness. 
But during the meantime, Elijah's got to learn that if he can speak, if he speaks for God and does his will, God will still be with him, whatever the repercussions of following God is. So a lesson's going on over here, but there's also a lesson for the faithful to know, even when you're in hot water, I'm going to be your covering and I'm going to protect you. Now this picture here is from the Grand Canyon. And while we were there, there were these uh, black birds that were just coming in. I thought they were crows. And so I began to get worried because I'm like, the crows here are on performance-enhancing drugs. <laughs> I said, have you seen the size of these crows? They're like this tall. And I said, I'm going to have to start a ministry here to help these crows understand that performance isn't that important. They don't have to be that big. They can trust in who God's made them to be. Yeah, sad. So then I just Googled it. And I said, babe, these are ravens. And do you know what these ravens would do? You know tourists, everything says don't feed the animals. You know how the law stirs up the sin nature on the inside of us? So like, here's these folks with like Doritos, like, look, feeding every animal. Um, but I thought it was cool too because I was able to see the animals up close but so these ravens were going swooping down getting these Doritos and they would go back and they would drop them into different holes and crags in the rock and one time you remember we hiked down into the Grand Canyon and one went right, right over ahead like, remember that and we were like whoa kind of scary and it's swooping down getting a Takis from a young man. So they like the spice. And he takes it. Look like, looked like he's smoking a cigar. Ah, I was like, hmm. ravens. We ain't even in Baltimore. We got these. Yeah. So they'd take them and they would put them in the different holes in the rocks. And that was before I even, I didn't even gather this from the story here that I was reading. But that's what ravens do. They go and get food and they hide it into different places in the rocks. So I always pictured the story like Elijah's like sitting Indian style. Um, oh, uh, and then the raven perches on his arm and he's like, oh, thank you. But what was actually going on is these ravens were finding holes in the rocks and he was having to turn his focus into a dirty bird and trust that God was going to speak to something that he'd never trusted before to then look to see their flight patterns to see where they put the food. So Elijah had to learn what it was like to climb the mountain, not just tell it to move. And the higher he got up and the more efficient he got at watching the ravens, the better he got at getting fed. See, God had to teach him provision in a famine. Because how many of you know you operate different when you're in a famine than you do when it's a feast? So ravens typically eat dead things. You know when they don't eat dead things? 
when they have the choice. So where were these ravens getting this clean food? I don't know. How far were they having to fly to get that bread and to get that meat that was clean? I'm not really sure. But how many of you know, you can't figure out everything about God on how he's going to take care of you. All you care about is if it gets dropped in a hole, you get it there and, and get what you need to get. Yeah. So Elijah's going through this, this time of, of getting these, trusting that these ravens, a bird that he'd never looked at, a situation that he thought would be unclean in every sense of the word, and now it's this unclean thing that he's depending on for food. Verse 7, after a while, the stream dried up because there had been no rain in the land. The Lord's message came to him. Get up and go to Zarephath in the Sidonian territory and live there. I have already told a widow who lives there to provide for you. So he goes from, he graduates from ravens to widows. But when you're operating in a famine, you have to be in step with the Lord because you can't afford to make one wrong step or you're not going to make it. And it'll go against every sensibility that we have most times. <laughs> but you have to trust that wherever God says go, that's where the treasure is. There's also another problem with this Sidonian town. This was Jezebel's hometown. Zarephath was where Jezebel lived or was from. So it's like, God's like, oh yeah, remember that one I told you to hide from? Yeah, go to the their hometown and you're going to find a widow and this widow's going to take care of you. So Elijah's having to go back into the enemy's camp. Now, why this widow? Here's what I think. I think God was showing a picture of what Jezebel could be, even if she was in such a place that was low, that there's this place here, if she'll return back to and humble herself, God will show up and meet her there as well. So God is saying, it's not your hometown or your circumstance or where you're living. It's the nature of your heart. And if you'll humble yourself, I'll meet you there. That everything's a testament to God's grace and what he wants to do in your life. This is why Jesus says, take care of the widows and the orphans. Not because they need you. You need them. Because without them, how are you going to know what the Father's heart's like? Yeah. It's an exchange. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten fed in places that surprised me. You ever had God do something in your life that surprised you? Man, I remember one time as a youth pastor, I was trying to get a bunch of money to send kids to church camp. And so, you know, I begged my pastor, hey, let me get up there on a Sunday night make an appeal, and see if I can get an offering for money for church camp for these kids who couldn't afford to go. So I get up there, and uh, I took way too long. But it was a passionate appeal. <laughs> and so I was excited. I said, oh, I felt the anointing. 
probably a killer offering. So I go find the financial administrator. How much we get for kids' church camp? Uh, let me see here. Uh, $50. That's when I learned something about church folk. Just because you excited do not mean that they excited. <laughs> Woo! So then I went to, you know, so I was a holy man. I went and did what anybody would do. I threw a fit. <laughs> God, you know what's up with this. You no, know I'm trying to get these kids saved and get them. And then I have somebody, the secretary calls and says, hey, uh, somebody's here to see you. Okay. Guy shows up. Hadn't washed his hair. Kind of dirty leather, kind of biker jacket, completely filthy. Comes in. And you know me, a man of faith. I said, oh God, what in the world's about to happen right here? <laughs> And I said, yes, sir, can I help you? And he said, I was sitting there in church last night. And I heard your appeal about those kids. And I want to help. I was like, oh, God, forgive me. Judgmental spirit. And that sucker pulled out a wad of cash out of his pocket like you ain't ever seen. And said, here, I think it's $700. And when you get handed a wad like that, you don't ask no questions. You say, woo, hallelujah. And there it was, church camp, an experience with God, with kids that couldn't have went otherwise coming in a means that I would have never suspected. See, some of you need to learn how to get fed by dirty birds. The people you counting out are the very ones that will feed you when you least expect it. Yeah. Verse 10. Oh, we got barbecue. I'm already up here. <laughs> so he got up, went to Zarephath, and he went through the city gate, and there was a widow gathering wood. He called out to her, please give me a little water in a cup so I can take a drink. As she went in to get it, he called out to her, please bring me a piece of bread. She said, as certainly as the Lord your God lives, I have no food except for a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. And right now I'm gathering a couple sticks for a fire. Then I'm going to go home and make one final meal for my son and myself. And after we have eaten that, we will die of starvation. Now in a society that's subject to disease and warfare, it's not uncommon to find widows 
But widows really didn't have any protection. The only way a widow made it in these times was through charity. So what Elijah didn't realize is, is the ravens were considered these dirty birds that were feeding him. He was now going to take the form of an unlikely candidate to help somebody else be able to eat as well. So when she saw him coming, at first she's thinking, okay, this is a raven coming here. And you know what ravens do? They eat things that are dead. So I must be dead. But what she didn't realize is God can change the trajectory of what was considered dirty and can put it in a position to where it becomes clean. So he takes the raven and turns it into a dove and then sends it on your doorstep to provide provision for you in the least likely time that you're expecting it. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, do not be afraid, go and do as you planned. But first, make me a small cake and bring it to me, then make something for yourself and your son. Now this only served to show the environment and corruption that was in her nation. But you know what I found God likes to do? He likes us to know that things are not our source. He is our source. And the only way he can transfer our faith from this being our source to this is to ask for something we think is our source. So he is coming in here to actually relieve her of the burden, to have her faith in her gaze, which was on this little handful of flour, this one meal, and then we die, and then the ravens will come eat us. And he says, no, 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 the ravens are coming to actually provide for you, and if you'll give me that, you can get your gaze off your circumstance and realize there's a God in heaven that is near no matter what the circumstance is, and he's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. God was giving her the source to make a way right in the middle of it. Because Jesus is operating in a different system than what we operate in. So they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Hmm. Jesus says, I don't know, throw me a coin. You see, he don't even operate by the system that they operate in. So they give him a coin and he says, whose inscription's on this? So he's moving them past where they're at to show them what, who their God really is. Because the first rule of the law was to have no graven images ahead of me. So while they're putting him to trial, he puts them to trial. He says, What's, throw me one of your graven images. Wow. Oh, whose inscription's on here? And they're like, oh, busted. Caesar. Okay, yeah, well, you just keep worshiping him then if that's your, uh, that's your thing. See, Jesus walks on what we work for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he walks on streets of gold. Yeah, he's not, he's not going to bend to your system of provision like you think he ought to. He's going to ask for obedience and you to trust that whatever he's going to do, he's going to do. 
Verse 14, for this is what the Lord God of Israel has said. The jar of flour will not be empty and the jug of oil will not run out until the day the Lord makes it rain on the surface of the ground. She went and did as Elijah told her and there was always enough food for Elijah and for her and her family. The jar of flour was never empty and the jug of oil never ran out. In keeping with the Lord's message that he had spoken through Elijah. So what I realized here is God was whittling Elijah down to a handful. And everything he was doing in the widow's life was whittling her down to a handful. Why? Because if God doesn't get us to our last, we won't have the ability to hand it over into him. See, God gave all for us, but the only way we can know how to give all is him to whittle enough down to all we have is what is in our hand so that we can know what it is to give all. See, when we've got a lot, a handful don't mean a whole lot. But through our circumstances, he whittles down us into this thing that we're holding on to, that we're, that we're saying, I've got to have this. I've, this is my thing, God. You can have every other part, but you're not getting this part from me. And he gets us down to our last handful so that we can experience the shame of him giving all to us and us giving what we consider all to him. Yeah, Karen's with me over here. Thank you, Karen. (laughs) See, because what we have last in our hand is what we keep identifying with. See, she had identified with this thing. Eat this and die. So guess what her perspective was? Eat Eat this and die. So he gets her outside of what she's identifying with. Do you know that's the thing of why it took me so long to come to the Lord? I thought when I came to the Lord that I was going to lose myself. Like I thought that like I'm going to give it to him and then he's going to do like a a possession of me and then I'm going to transform into something I'm not. And I'm going to be like this robot guy. Because I thought if I hand him what I've got left, then who the heck am I going to be? But what I didn't realize is that little bit that was in my hand wasn't who I was anyway. It was something I had put faith in that I thought was me. And when I handed it over to him, He opened the eyes up to the reality of who I actually am, and that is a son of God, that is a king priest, that is with him in eternity, that will never, ever have to experience another moment without him. So I want to know is, God's whittled somebody here today down to your last little bit, and you've been afraid to give it because you're like, who the heck am I going to be if I hand this to you, God? Here's what he says. He says, you know who you're going to be? You're going to be free. Because you're not going to be bound by this last little bit that is your God. Some of you need to put some relationships right here and say, God, here. 
Some of you need to put some career paths right here and say, God, it's yours. Whatever you say. Some of you need to put everything on the altar just to realize that it's not, that, that's not me. That's what I'm identifying with. But he's the only judge and he's the only father. And he's the one that tells me who I actually am. God's getting you down to your last to expose everything. And he's kicking every crutch that you've had been leaning on out from under you. So that you are down to your last. So you'll know what it is to hand your last to God. Man, my prayer on the altar when I got saved was so pitiful. You know what it was? Here's what I, here was my prayer. I said, God, I should have came to you when I had a lot. <laughs> but now I got nothing. And I ain't asking you for anything. I'm putting myself on this altar and say, I'm yours. And if you'll take me, if you'll have me. You can have me. I'm yours. And I thought in my mind that was it for me right there. But what I didn't realize is he who lays down his life actually finds it. He who lays down his own plans and their own ambitions and their own stuff who's willing to lay down those things, they'll actually find who they actually are. If God didn't get you down to your last, you wouldn't know what it was to hand your all. Yeah. Because God won't make the part stand for the whole. And when you try to make the part stand for the whole, you're going to be like Ananias and Sapphira. You're going to fall out dead because the last you refuse to hand over is your God. Yeah, it's your God. That's what you really will, that's what you're really serving. You can cloak it with Christian stuff. You can cloak it with worship. You can cloak it with altar time. You can cloak it with vibrance. You can cloak it with smile. Mm -mm. You're not fooling God. But oh, if he'll hand it over and put it in his hands, he'll show you who you really are. He'll show you who you really are. And guess what? That little bit is not you. And it's not yours anyway. Yeah, it's his. So hand it over and watch God do something in the middle of the famine. Yeah, 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 he'll do it, he'll do it, he'll do it. Would you stand to your feet in this place? If that's you, God's saying, I want you to hand over the little, I want you to come down to the front right now. Move. If you need to get your barbecue on, get your barbecue on. We're gonna get our God on down here. What's the little bit he's asking you to trust him with? What's the little bit he's asking you? It's nothing. It's nothing compared to his glory. 
It's nothing compared to the King. It's nothing compared to the Spirit of God. It's nothing compared to His destiny. It's nothing compared to His glory and His greatness. It is absolutely nothing. Put it in His hands. Put it in His hands. Put it in His hands. Your life depends on it. Your destiny depends on it. Put it in His hands. Quit worrying about being good. Start worrying about walking with God. You can't change anybody. God's given us free will. All you can do is change yourself. Hand it over to God. 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 God's sending some ravens right now. God's sending ravens to fill your soul right now. God's sending ravens all over this place. Quit trying to figure God out on how He's going to feed you. He'll do it any way He wants to. He'll put a Dorito in a hole to feed you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. Quit trying to force it. Quit trying to force something. Quit trying to force something. Make your mind up and do what's right. God will work it all out. You just keep doing what's right. Just keep doing what's right. Quit telling him what you gave up for him as if he wasn't worth it. your hands all over this place God we give you our last we give you our last we give you that little bit we got that we've been hanging on to it's yours God God we hand over that unforgiveness towards that person that we push down and try to pretend it isn't there no we give it to you God, we take that root of bitterness, that critical spirit that's kept us from experiencing you and gets us in the place of watching and judging instead of worshiping and enjoying. We give it to you. God, we drop the rocks in our hands aimed at everybody else so that we can lift our hands in worship unto you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, God. We worship you. We worship you, God. We worship you. Oh, we worship you. We worship you. Give you our last. We give you our last. Now, here's what I want you to do. If you're down here praying, put your hand on somebody's shoulder. If you're out there in the audience, put your hand on the shoulder of someone next to you. You want your miracle? Pray for somebody else to get theirs. 
you want your touch, pray for somebody else to get theirs. Get outside of yourself for once. Get outside of yourself for once and put your hands on them. Intercede and bombard heaven and see God move in your life when you start working in others. Let's make this a house of prayer for all nations. Thank you, God.